From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, April 27th. I'm Marco Werman. New concerns about Europe dragging the global economy down again. The latest country in trouble? The Netherlands. Reinforcing all this austerity on the Greek people, on the Portugal, on Spain, Ireland. And now we're the ones failing. Also on the program, Madeleine Albright describes her visit to a former Nazi concentration camp. When you're there, you can hear the screaming, and there are a lot of ghosts. Plus, kids under the age of 18 are banned from a Lady Gaga concert in South Korea. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, presenting Frontline's Money, Power, and Wall Street. Four years after the financial crisis exploded, are we safer? The investigation goes on in Washington, U.S. banks, and the looming troubles in Europe. Tuesday, May 1st at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We woke up this morning to some disappointing news about the economy. According to the Commerce Department, U.S. economic growth has slowed down this year. Well, we can consider ourselves lucky to be growing at all. Some countries in Europe don't have it that good. A few days ago, Britain officially declared a double-dip recession, and today Spain got clobbered with a triple whammy of bad economic news. Over to the world's Jerry Haddon in Barcelona for the details. First piece of bad news is that Spain is now back in a recession. This is the second recession in two years, so it's a double dip for Spain, uh, just like in the UK. The second is that unemployment went up over 24% in the first quarter of 2012. And the third piece of bad news is that the ratings agency Standard & Poor's downgraded Spain a couple of notches and is predicting that the recession will likely last through 2013, all of which will make borrowing money for Spain that much more difficult. And with the recession, I understand that consumer spending is way off. Exactly. Consumer spending dropped for the 21st consecutive month this month. Part of the problem is that as people lose jobs, obviously, they rein in their spending. And even the solution that the government is proposing in terms of reining in its debt is likely to hurt consumer spending as well, because essentially what the federal government wants to do is raise the sales tax, and that hits consumers at the cash registers. Is it true, Jerry, that generally foreign goods are cheaper in Spain than uh, Spanish-made goods? Yes, that's a result of uh, what's happened essentially over the last decade. The cost of Spanish labor went way up during a decades-long housing boom. And so that makes the cost of Spanish goods more expensive. And so now some economists say that Spanish labor costs about 40% too much compared to, say, German labor. But yet we're living in this global economy, and there's lots of very cheap goods entering Spain from other parts of Europe, from the U.S., but mainly from the emerging markets. So you find you know, cheap goods in stores, but Spanish goods are more and more expensive and more and more difficult to sell abroad. The end result of that is that as, as a nation, you've got a country that's spending more than it's taking in. 
As far as that huge unemployment number, how does that look actually in Barcelona? I mean, what does 25 percent unemployment actually look like? It looks like very long lines down at the public unemployment offices. And interestingly, when you when I used to go into those offices from time to time to interview folks about the economy, there used to be long lines at the traditional windows where Spaniards were looking for jobs in Spain. And then there was a sort of little office off to the side for the occasional Spaniard that spoke another language that was possibly looking to emigrate to another country. And now that's where the big lines are. There's so many young Spaniards looking desperately overseas, either within the European Union or to Latin America, where they share language with most of the countries there Mm. for work, because there's just no opportunity here. Is there any good news at all right now, Jerry, in Spain, economically? I wish I could tell you that there is. But, you know, today is just, is frankly, a bad day. And I'll add one more piece of bad news just to make it a really perky Friday. (laughs) 1.3 million Spanish households now have nobody with a job at all. So those families, 1.3 million, are completely dependent on savings, extended family, or on public welfare. But that money is slowly shrinking as well. So Spain really is in a situation where it needs to find some way to begin to grow. The world's Europe correspondent, Jerry Haddon, in Barcelona. Thank you for helping us keep our chin up today. (laughs) Thanks again. Spain's been suffering economically for quite some time. That's not true of the Netherlands. It's been seen as one of Europe's strongest economies and a core part of the Eurozone. But now it's slid into recession and the Dutch need to make some painful budget cuts. But weeks of political wrangling over that have led to the dissolution of the government. The world's Clark Boyd reports from Amsterdam. Take a walk through one of central Amsterdam's biggest and swankiest department stores and it's hard to notice signs of a Dutch recession. People stroll by carrying shopping bags with designer labels like Gucci and Rolex. But get out of the city center and you will find people on the economic margins struggling to get by. This is one of Amsterdam's food banks. Twice a week, people can come and collect things like canned goods, bread, pasta, rice, fruits and vegetables. This is one of more than a dozen food banks run by this organization in the Amsterdam area. In the first quarter of this year, the number of households served grew by more than 30 percent. Piet van Diepen is on the board of the food bank. Now we see that there's uh, the crisis and we see it. We're afraid uh, the number of our customers will grow uh, in the coming months and years. Van Diepen says that most of the people using the food bank are hurting because of a combination of low income and high debts. Most live in public housing. But, Van Diepen says, that's starting to change. What we see now is that there is a a new group coming that maybe has bought a house but is now without work, can't afford to pay the mortgage, and then they have problems, yes. We have seen some, here. But a reality check is in order here. The Netherlands isn't Greece or Spain or Italy. In fact, there's only one Eurozone country that's richer per capita, Luxembourg. Dutch unemployment and interest rates remain relatively low, and personal savings remain high. And yet the country still needs to slash more than $18 billion from its budget to meet EU-mandated austerity targets. Matthias Baumann is a Dutch economist and commentator. He says that the A-word, austerity, has always been something the Dutch forced on others since the euro began in the early 90s. It was the Dutch who always emphasized it, even more than the Germans. And we've been strong about that until a month ago, reinforcing all this austerity on the Greek people in Portugal, on Spain, Ireland. And now we're the ones failing. 
Anne Bauman says Dutch politicians are trying to tap into the fear of that failure. In particular, Geert Wilders of the far-right Freedom Party. Wilders used the budget negotiations as a platform for attacking Brussels-mandated austerity targets. It wrecked the talks, Bauman says, and brought down the government. It's a political crisis we are in, not a financial or an economic crisis, but of course a political crisis, if not well managed, well, can in the end become a financial crisis if you lose confidence of the financial markets. And if Holland falters economically and politically, the fear is that the core of the Eurozone may be about to falter as well. And if the Eurozone collapses, it would have global repercussions. This is serious business. The whole wide world is watching. Willem Post is an analyst and commentator with the Klingendale Institute in The Hague. The Netherlands is a strong economy. We are in the top three in Europe, with Germany and Finland. We we always had sound economic conditions here and a a very good economy. But now we have some problems. And I can imagine that for the U.S., if a country like the Netherlands, a rock-solid economy, has its problems, that will have ramifications in Europe, but also consequences for the U.S. economy. In other words, what happens in the Netherlands, and more widely in the European economy, really counts. Again, Matthias Baumann. If things go wrong in Europe, then it will be the biggest financial crisis in history in the world. All the banks in the U.S. will have a huge problem. So if you liked the credit crisis of 2008, then you will love the euro crisis of 2012. The Dutch now have a caretaker government after the recent collapse, and it did manage to reach a budget deal yesterday, which it will send on to Brussels for EU approval. New elections are set for September, but many aren't holding out much hope for stability. It will be Holland's seventh government in the past 12 years. For The World, this is Clark Boyd, Amsterdam. The Dutch may have another economic concern. They're about to lose some tourism. There's a certain group of visitors who come for Holland's famously relaxed drug rules. Some of you may even know who I'm talking about. But soon you'll have to get a weed pass to score cannabis in Dutch coffee houses, and only Dutch residents will be eligible for those passes. A court upheld that law today in the Netherlands. It's intended to crack down on drug tourists. So let's get reaction from the owner of the Indica coffee shop in the Dutch city of Harlem, Noel van Schaik. First off, what is on the menu today at your coffee house? Good afternoon. Well, on the menu we have uh, White Widow, the world-famous cheese, Amnesia Haze, we have uh, Pakistan genetic Moroccan grown. Uh, we have isolator hash. We have Shiva gold. We have a huge menu. So what are your thoughts then about this idea of weed passes that will essentially exclude foreigners from buying pot in your coffee shop? Well, I think it's going to ruin us. We held an inquiry. I'm also the secretary of the coffee shop uh, entrepreneurs, 16 coffee shops in Ireland, uh, United. And we held an inquiry uh, six weeks ago. And that shows that 87% of our customers, the locals, don't want to register as a, a cannabis consumer. How soon will these weed passes be issued? And are you planning to go along with the plan or fight it? It's next Tuesday. Uh, after we did the inquiry uh, showing that we will go bankrupt if we uh, introduce the weed pass, we decided not to do it uh, with all 16 coffee shops in Ireland. Closing the coffee shops is no option. Why did the Dutch government decide to issue these weed passes? What's the point? I don't know what the point is. Uh, I can imagine that in the border areas, the cities that have coffee shops, they are flushed with tourists. But it's not so much a drug problem. It's a parking problem because the the tourists clog up the cities. Uh, The locals can hardly do their shopping and things like that. So I think that's more of the problem than a drug problem being caused by the coffee shops as such.
I mean, the Dutch tolerance approach to cannabis, as you know, began in the 70s as a way to reduce street dealing with the policy now becoming more intolerant. Do you think street dealing and crime is going to make a resurgence? Oh, yeah, it will. Uh, in the town of Venlo, there's, there's rumor that groups of people are already buying places uh, to be able to uh, serve the market that will be refused by the, the coffee shops to be able to sell wheat to foreigners that don't have a wheat pass. What are the customers at Indica? How have they been reacting to the ruling? The Dutch well, customers. they don't want to register. They're, they're not uh, so, going to register. Uh, no. What do you object to most, that weed passes will cut into your profits or just the whole nagging bureaucracy of this idea? Both. It will cut into my profits, of course, but we have to check ID on people already to see if they're 18 when they're coming in. And uh, we, we can only have 500 grams, so I have to drive up and down 20 times a day to refill uh, a cup of weed because if you have a big menu... You can only have 30 grams of each uh, strain available. And if it's sold out, you have to bring in a new bag. So it's, it's, we already have a lot of things to do running a coffee shop. And I don't think we need all those unpleasant stories of having to turn people down at the entrance. I don't like that. You know, slowly states in the U.S. are beginning to realize that the benefits of medicinal marijuana. Strangely, the Netherlands is going in the reverse direction. Yeah, that's what I say. And at the moment that the world starts following Holland as a model, Holland is killing the model. Thank you very much, Noel. You're welcome. And you're welcome in my coffee shop next year as well, because we're just not going to do it. Noel van Schaik, who runs the Indica coffee shop in Harlem in the Netherlands. Our GeoQuiz today takes us back to Spain. In addition to its economic woes, Spain also endured some sports-related pain this week. The country's two top teams, Barcelona and Real Madrid, were eliminated from Europe's top club competition. Both Barca and Real, as they're known, were favorites. In fact, many soccer fans and experts consider the current Barcelona squad the best soccer team ever. We're not going to ask you if you agree. We just want you to name the stadium where Barcelona plays its home games. It's one of the great cathedrals of world soccer, with room for up to 99,000 screaming fans. It also houses a museum, several TV studios, and a chapel next to the locker rooms, just in case. Today, an era came to an end inside the stadium. We'll fill you in when we return with the answer later in the program. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. When some Secret Service agents got caught partying with prostitutes ahead of President Obama's visit to Colombia this month, it was a big embarrassment, not just for the U.S. government, but for people in Cartagena as well. They complain that the international media have unfairly branded their city as a playground for promiscuity. John Otis has a story. Street musicians provide a festive welcome to Cartagena, the city has been designated a World Heritage Site by the UN. Massive monasteries have been converted into luxury hotels. 18th century stone walls surround the city center, which is nearly always packed with tourists. 
Cartagena embodies Colombia's transformation over the past decade from a guerrilla and drug cartel stronghold to a hot spot for foreign investment and tourism. Luis Araujo is president of the Cartagena Tourist Board. Uh, this is a city known for uh, being a World Heritage Site. Uh, it is known for its architecture. Uh, it is known for its history for giving support to Simon Bolivar's revolution for independence. So there's a lot of things that make Cartagena unique. But two days before President Obama arrived in Cartagena for the summit, a Secret Service advance man got into a noisy argument with a prostitute over her $800 fee. The resulting scandal led to the dismissal of 11 Secret Service agents and the arrival of the media hordes. Now, city officials claim Cartagena is being portrayed as a kind of pre-Castro Havana, where anything goes. The Washington Post described the city as swimming in prostitutes. Spirit Airlines began selling flights to Cartagena with internet ads depicting a Secret Service agent carousing with bikini-clad women. The ad's slogan was, more bang for your buck. Prostitution is in every part of the world, so it's not like a big deal. And they, now it's Cartagena, sex city, touristic sex city. So we think it's very wrong. Victoria Escobar is a city hall spokeswoman. She said electoral politics in the United States are driving the scandal as Republicans paint Obama as a bumbling government manager. And in the middle of this campaign, they're like using us. They don't want Obama to be reelected. So we feel really bad about that. Still, prostitution is legal in Colombia. And after dark, sex is openly on sale in Cartagena. This street hustler offers to bring me to the Play Club Bordello, which he claims is home to the finest women in town. Instead, I opt for a more sedate tour of the city aboard a horse-drawn carriage, but I immediately receive a similar offer from the driver. Ladies, beer. Ladies and beer. And drink beer. Because Cartagena is Colombia's top tourist attraction, it also draws prostitutes from all over the country. Maria Avila arrived here from the Pacific Coast 17 years ago. She said about half her customers are foreigners. The gringos like to be with prostitutes. They like sex and drugs. They come here to go crazy. But there are many dark sides to the sex business. It often involves illegal drugs, human trafficking, and child prostitution. Last year, Cartagena authorities received about 400 reports of alleged sex crimes involving children. Mayerlin Vergara directs a city shelter for sexually abused adolescents and child prostitutes. She says sexual tourism degrades Colombia and its women. Others warn that if the business becomes too big, as it has in some areas of Thailand, it could scare away more lucrative family and adventure tourism. That's why Araujo of the Tourist Board says foreigners in search of prostitutes should skip Cartagena. To make that clear to people who might be listening to your show, this is not what we're looking for. This is not our brand statement that we want to have out there. It is very unfortunate that it has happened, but it points to an issue that we have to tackle together. For the world, I'm John Otis, Cartagena, Colombia.
Officials in South Korea weren't shy about taking a moral stand this week. They banned all people under the age of 18 from attending a Lady Gaga concert in Seoul. The government deemed Lady Gaga's music and provocative stage antics to be harmful for young people. The concert went ahead several hours ago, and I'm guessing there are some pretty upset little monsters in the South Korean capital tonight. The BBC's Lucy Williamson is in Seoul, where she says reaction is mixed. We've been talking to a few people here in the centre of town about what they make of the ban, and opinion here has been pretty split, I have to say. Even amongst fairly young people, uh, some believe the ban is actually a good thing and that it protects South Korea's youth. But um, I've got to say, it's quite an unusual move by the South Korean state authorities here, and it has been controversial with a few people. I mean, it makes uh, South Korea seem pretty conservative. South Korea is pretty conservative underneath. When you walk around the capital here, it's very vibrant. It feels very secular, very 21st century. There are, you know, advertising video screens on top of the skyscrapers. There are martini bars. There's great coffee. People are walking around in short skirts. You know, it feels like a modern, vibrant capital. It doesn't feel conservative. But just under the surface, there is a lot of Christian values. There's a lot of even um, more ancient Confucian conservatism that really comes through on certain issues. So while a lot of the younger people are behaving in very different ways to their parents and grandparents, there is a kind of policing of society that goes on behind the scenes. I think what's unusual about this is that it's not going on behind the scenes this time. It really is out there in the open. Mm, So Lady Gaga played her gig uh, tonight, but uh, when was the ban on the under-18s actually announced? The ban was announced a few days back now, but the concert tonight, of course, has been the focal point of this. I was told that the operators of the concert, the organisers of the concert, were checking identification cards on the door just to make sure that policy was really enforced and that no one under 18 was allowed in. Lady Gaga, having ridden in to the concert on a real horse, Mm. did address this ban on the under-18s and said this will be an over-18s event, this stadium is a womb, she said, and we will be reborn. And it's that kind of religious imagery that's got her into trouble here, along with Mm. the kind of perceived promiscuity, the perceived promotion of homosexuality. I imagine still, Lucy, that there are some pretty disappointed teenagers in Seoul today. I imagine there are, yes. And in fact, the ones who got caught early were the ones who had used their parents' cards to buy uh, their tickets. You know, some credit card companies here allowed adults to give children their own cards. So those were very easily traced. The worry was that a lot of people would simply turn up and be found on the night to be underage. And we're not quite sure what effect that might have had on the audience tonight. Right. So South Korean kids uh, aren't averse to workarounds on this law. Are they uh, are they hip to fake IDs? I imagine some of them are. Actually, South Korean kids seem to be a fairly law-abiding lot. Um, certainly nothing to compete with what I grew up with. But there is a sense that, that society is changing, I have to say, that people are paying lip service to the old conservative mores, you know, paying lip service to what their parents and grandparents would expect. But at the same time, a lot of them are going out and doing exactly what they want. The BBC's Lucy Williamson in Seoul. Thank you so much. Thanks. I'm Marco Werman. Just ahead, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright on U.S. power and when to use it. I don't believe that people sit in their offices trying to make stupid decisions, but the bottom line is the war in Iraq, I think, was a mistake. Our wide-ranging conversation with Madeleine Albright, coming up on The World. 
The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Madeleine Albright used to be America's top diplomat. She was Secretary of State from 1997 to 2001 when the war in Kosovo broke out. She also served as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. during the Rwanda genocide. But her new book tells a more personal tale. It's called Prague Winter, a personal story of remembrance and war, 1937 to 1948. In it, Albright writes about what it was like in 1997 after learning that some of her relatives were Jewish and that many of them died in a Nazi camp called Terezin. I had to absorb that at a, uh, at a strange time. I mean, I'd just been the first woman secretary of state. The only way to describe it is, is I had been asked to represent my country in a marathon and was given a very heavy package to carry as I ran, not only to carry but to unwrap. And people were trying to figure out if I, if a woman could even be Secretary of State. So I asked my brother and sister to go to the Czech Republic in order to begin to unravel the story, and they did. Right, and Terezin, this camp where a lot of your extended family were sent and later died, it was billed by the Nazis as a spa, but it was obviously yeah. far from that. Actually, I've been there as, on the surface, an attractive town, but horrible in terms of what was going on there. People were being prepared to be sent on to the death camps. And among the sadomasochistic, cynical things that the barbaric Nazis did was, in fact, to create a group of Jewish elders who then had to make the choices about who went on to the death camps. You have a firsthand account written of the train that transported your 12-year-old cousin Milena that night in 1944 to her death. I'm wondering if you could read that for us. At 9.30, getting people into the cars, the sick, the sick, the sick, stretchers without end, and all this, including loading luggage, is done by 40 people with white caps. Luggage everywhere, luggage in front of the sluice gate, luggage in the sluice gate, on the platforms, in the cars, and everyone has so ridiculously little, and even that will probably be taken from them. Small children, 3 to 10, screaming. Each has a little backpack. There's not a person here whose history is not a tragedy. All have been abandoned. Those who walk have turned to stone. Those who remain swallow their tears. In the end, the luggage remained. There was no space. It just leaves a pit in your stomach. I mean, that is the night that your cousin gets taken away. That is that train. What was it like piecing together this history? Well, unbelievably sad. I have to tell you, and you asked me earlier what I knew, and and I obviously had known about the Holocaust, but then putting my own family into the middle of it and going to Terezin and trying to visualize what it was like. I mean, it's empty, obviously, now, and then when you're there, you can hear the screaming, and there are a lot of ghosts, and it's creepy. There's no other way to describe it. Let's talk about what this history says about policy. Terezin, this camp where a lot of your extended family were sent and later died, used by the Nazis as propaganda. They invited in the International Committee for the Red Cross. They said, look, it's a spa, and a lot of people believe that. So let's bring this to the current day. Within the next month, 300 inspectors will be arriving in Syria. What are your thoughts with the lessons of Terezin in mind? 
I didn't actually think that it would be so germane right away uh, when I wrote about this. And so I think the lesson is, first of all, for observers, monitors, they have to be prepared and push and ask questions and not be satisfied and not allow themselves to just be taken around by minders. I mean, we've seen a number of inspectors go into Syria now, and the net result is that they haven't been terribly fruitful. What is left in the diplomatic toolbox? I'm sure that behind the scenes there are things going on to push the Chinese and the Russians to join the rest of the world in terms of condemnation of what is going on. I think also there are additional ways to provide non-lethal humanitarian assistance, try to figure out how to help the refugees, a lot of economic tools. I teach courses about the National Security Toolbox, and there are not that many tools in it. So as far as I'm concerned, one should never take any option off the table. Uh, including the military one. But the bottom line is, as decision makers look at this, they have to figure out what's doable and what brings the right results. But world opinion seems to keep inching toward action. And and President Obama's speech this week uh, on atrocities uh, kind of implies a moral responsibility. What do you think then is a tipping point? I mean, how bad do things have to get before someone intervenes militarily? I think that there is no exact tipping point, and it's not, I mean, if one were looking at numbers, the tipping point has been reached. But the bottom line is, I think it is a matter of what is a useful thing to do, what does not make things worse. Syria is in a very difficult geographical location, and whatever can happen there could explode outward in terms of the various sectarian aspects of it. What happened in Libya is interesting because the Arab League was very supportive of it. So you need a a regional partner and you need to figure out who would actually go in and do something more militarily. Libya is a good example. Let's take an extreme example of waiting for that tipping point. Rwanda, Romeo Dallaire, who headed the, the UN force during the genocide in Rwanda, notes that when you were the U.S. ambassador uh, to the U.N., you avoided describing the killings in Rwanda as genocide until the evidence uh, of genocide was overwhelming. Three quarters of a million people had died in that, as you know, in that genocide. Does that haunt you? And are you worried that President Obama could face a similar situation where he's behind that tipping point? Well, first of all, definitely it haunts me and and President Clinton. We've talked about it, but it's a different situation. And You have to put yourself in the position of the decision makers at what information they had at the time. The bottom line is I think that we couldn't have gotten there in time to stop it no matter what. On uh, Syria, I think we do have more information. That is the thing that has been going on and the role of information. One could argue that nobody had information about what was happening to the Jews during World War II. I obviously would not be one to do that, but it was not the kind of level of information that we have now as a result of social media and uh, penetration. And so this concept about protecting people is much more vivid. I mean, the flip side, of course, are the dangers of intervention, like uh, as we saw in Iraq. Well, definitely. I don't believe that people sit in their offices trying to make stupid decisions, but the bottom line is the war in Iraq, I think, was a mistake. Madeleine Albright, having done this incredible uh, body of research for your book, Prague Winter, how does what you've learned about your family's past color your thinking on what must be done now to prevent genocide? I do think that it does provide a very important motivation to everybody about making sure that we care about other human beings that live in places that are far away with unpronounceable names. That is what the British and French said about Czechoslovakia. 
a faraway place with unpronounceable names, and that we do have, as human beings, a responsibility for each other and trying to figure out how to not just mitigate but make sure that terrible things do not continue to happen because people target others not for anything that they've done but who they are. The book is called Prague Winter, A Personal Story of Remembrance and War, 1937 to 1948. Madeline Albright, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You can see an excerpt from my interview with the former Secretary of State. We posted a video at theworld.org. There's still no sign in Syria that international intervention can bring peace to the country. The killings there continue despite a two-week-old ceasefire backed by the United Nations. Tens of thousands of people have fled the violence by crossing into Turkey. They first arrived about a year ago, and they're not going home anytime soon. In one refugee camp, residents have organized a musical ensemble for the children living there. It's called The Blossoms of the Revolution. Matthew Brunwasser reports from the Turkish-Syrian border. Getting children to stand still in a refugee camp is no different than it is anywhere else. We're on stage. It's shortly before showtime, and director Yasser Jani has his hands full. But the Blossoms of the Revolution is no ordinary kids' ensemble. We will go to paradise if we are killed, the children sing. Don't feel sad for us because we will be martyrs. Don't say that we are children. What we have seen has made us grown-ups. This is a Palestinian song that Johnny adapted to the Syrian situation. I asked him if having the children sing a song like this was going too far, whether he was politicizing the children too much. How is it possible to talk to a child about springtime and flowers and nice things when his father's been killed in front of him? I'm totally against politicizing children, but it's not something you have a choice about. I'm doing this because these kids have seen terrible things, just like when I was a child in Chizar al-Shagur and the security forces broke down the door of my house and took away my father. They have seen the army invading and killing people. I want to protect them from the situation as much as possible. Everyone here is feeling fear, and I'm trying to defeat that. Jihad al-Jisri has a son singing in the group. We are teaching our kids how to support the rest of the children in Syria and to feel like one of them. We want to teach them national unity and for them to feel the same feelings as all the kids in all the cities of Syria. Holmes the Free is the mother of the revolution with its roaring Arontis River, the song says. And Idlib, with her green eyes, is about to be on fire. Dara is the power and the glory of the nation which triggered it all. The song urges children to work hard and do a good job for the revolution. Al-Jisri points out that the acts of children and the resulting violence against them sparked off the Syrian revolution in the southern city of Dara. And that got him involved as well. I personally went out to protest on April 1st last year in Jizr al-Shagur because of what I saw happening to the kids in Dara. I don't think about it in terms of religion. I look at it as a humanitarian obligation. 
my humanity forced me to come out and protest on the street. Samira Shrehi is a 25-year-old mother of four from Dama who fled to Turkey last May. This is the first time I have ever seen a show in my entire life. This performance was made for Syria, for the revolution, for the youth. We are praying to God to help us win so we can go back home. She says her children have nothing to do all day and run around the camp without any control. We are not happy here. I will never find a place better than my country. If they give us all the treasures of the world, we will never trade it for Syria. We are praying to God, please let us go home. For people who have lost everything important, faith in a future without Syrian President Bashar al-Assad might well be the only thing they have left. And judging from the passion shown at the Blossoms of the Revolution show, there seems to be no other way forward. For the world, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Yayla Dawan refugee camp near the Turkish-Syrian border. Our GeoQuiz today asks you to name one of the cathedrals of world soccer. This one is a grandiose stadium in Barcelona, Spain, that's home to arguably one of the best soccer teams of all time. The answer is the Nou Camp. And somewhere deep beneath the stadium at a press conference today, an era came to an end. The world's soccer man, William Troop, is here to tell us about it. William, what era ended today? Well, it's the era of Pep Guardiola. He's the coach of Barcelona. He led the club for the past four years. And in those four years, they won something like 13 trophies, uh, some national ones, but also two European trophies for clubs and two world championships for clubs. And it's more than just wins and championships, though, isn't it? I mean, he, he's a coach who really gave them a trademark, Barcelona. That's right. What he gave them is this system of play that they're really known for now that you know pretty much everybody's trying to copy. They call it the tick-tock uh, because it's kind of like the imaginary sound that two players might make when they pass the ball back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they make all these little passes until they find an opening and boom, they go in and score a goal. And this is something that has worked wonders for uh, Lionel Messi and uh, some of the other players in Barcelona who are considered some of the best in the world. But they are considered some of the best in the world because of the way they play. And Pep Guardiola came up with that. So Pepe Guardiola quitting this team is a little bit like, uh, I don't know, like Phil Jackson quitting the, the Chicago Bulls uh, after their three-peat NBA championships. Jackson created a, a system of play for the Bulls. Uh, I don't know if you remember the triangle offense that Michael right. Jordan and some of the other players really uh, excelled at. So is the Pep Guardiola dynasty over, and will this idea, this TikTok strategy, survive without Pep Guardiola? Well, that is a great question. One of the other things that uh, distinguishes Barcelona from really most other teams is that they created this system almost entirely based on homegrown players, players that they developed in their own youth academies. Pep Guardiola came from that system himself. He was a player before he was a coach. And so theoretically, the system can keep going without Pep Guardiola. But the question really is, how much of this success for Barcelona over the years based on the genius of one man, and how much is based on this grassroots system of play that they've created there? And really, we won't know until Barcelona plays under a different coach. If Guardiola was such a crucial part of Barcelona's team, why did he leave? Well, today, his answer to that question was stress. Uh, It was four really pressure-filled years. Given the imprint uh, Pep Guardiola has left on Barcelona, do you think uh, the team instantly loses luster without him? I think a little bit, uh, because for the past four years, it's been a very compact team. 
not just the coach, but the main players in that system. And now that unit loses a piece. So I, I think, yes, they lose a little luster, but hopefully they keep going with the same style. He is the World Soccer Desk, William Troop, and he did give us the answer to the Geo Quiz today. If you recall, it was the Nou Camp, the stadium in Barcelona. William, thanks a lot. You're welcome. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Human rights activists in China say a prominent dissident lawyer there has escaped from house arrest. Chen Guangcheng was confined to his home in rural Shandong province after Chinese authorities released him from jail in 2010. Today, a video was posted online allegedly showing the blind lawyer in a safe location. In the video, Chen says he now fears for his family's safety. The BBC's Yuan Wu is following the story. She says Chen is believed to be hiding somewhere in Beijing. There has been speculation that Mr. Chen is actually in the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, but uh, various organizations have been in touch with the embassy but couldn't get any confirmation, couldn't get hold of anybody. So we don't know whether that's true. If he's not at the U.S. Embassy, wouldn't uh, the Chinese capital be a dangerous place for him to be hiding out? It would be. He has to have uh, a network of friends who are hiding him well. All we know that is that uh, somebody helped him escape from his province of Shandong to Beijing. And we hear that uh, somebody who helped him to escape is actually under arrest. Well, Chen is blind, which obviously means that he needed some help to escape, I I suppose. Remind us what specifically Chen did to get himself in prison and then house arrest. There are a lot of problems with the one-child policy because the officials are very keen to enforce that policy. And there were a lot of, you know, forced sterilization on women and late abortions and practices like that. So he, uh, in a way, tried to help these women and eventually exposed the bad practice to the media. And that's when he got into trouble. In 2006, he was actually arrested and and charged, not for his activism, but for something like damaging public property. So he uh, served a sentence of four years, and then he was released in 2010. But ever since he was released, he wasn't free at all. He hasn't been free. He has been under really round-the-clock surveillance. And these, um, you know, thugs or security people hired by local authorities have been constantly uh, threatening the family, beating up himself, his wife, and uh, threatening their children. They put cameras around his house. So he was basically under house arrest for all this time. Yuen, what do you make of the video statement that uh, Chen released today after escaping house arrest? It's very interesting he uh, chose Premier Wen Jiabao to address this to. I think, you know, somehow Wen Jiabao has been trying to portray himself as a more caring of the Chinese leaders. And, you know, he always shows up in disaster zones. He cries over other people's sufferings. He calls for political reform, but nobody seemed to pay attention. So in a way, it's a very interesting tactic. Chen Guangcheng was basically saying, you know, now please do something to uh, help investigate who has been harassing me and let's do a thorough investigation. Otherwise, what will the people think about you?
It, it seems uh, like a political firestorm that uh, China would uh, rather be happy not to have right now. Uh, Hillary Clinton is visiting next week. How damaging could this be politically for China? It's a very sensitive time because, as you say, Hillary Clinton will be in town next week. And I'm sure, you know, now Chinese foreign ministry has a daily briefing from Monday to Friday. I'm sure this question, like, where is Chen Guangzhou? Is he safe? How are you treating the case? I'm sure Western journalists will ask Chinese spokespeople questions about this. And I'm sure Hillary Clinton will be under pressure from human rights organizations from concerned citizens to raise this issue with his Chinese counterpart. Yuan Wu is the editor for BBCChinese.com. She's been speaking with us from London. Thank you very much, Yuan. Thank you. The band Rupa and the April Fishes has toured Europe, Asia, and North America. And as band leader Rupa Maria puts it, they've spewed carbon from planes, trains, and cars along the way. But on their current tour, they're traveling carbon neutral on bikes. Lonnie Shavelson followed along. Rupa and the April Fishes set out on tour last week. You guys ready? Vamanos! Let's go! <laughs> With that yell, they launched their bicycle caravan onto a San Francisco street. Fifteen bikes, drum kit, a sound system, guitars, electric bass, a microphone, microphone stands, speakers. The last bike was the cello player's, his large, delicate, stringed instrument strapped on the back of the bike he was now pedaling at a fast clip alongside cars, motorcycles, and trucks. How's everyone doing? Heading out of town to start their carbon-neutral music tour. 250 miles in nine days. With ten concerts, pedaling nearly a ton of music gear. Damn, this thing is getting heavy. Around a very large, hilly, but beautiful bay. Because I'm on my way, yes, I'm on, I'm on my way now. On the first mile, Rupa breaks into song. Nobody, nobody said it's gonna be easy. And the road is long, it's gonna be longer still. A little background on Rupa and the April Fishes. Rupa Maria grew up mostly in the Bay Area, but her Indian-born parents also raised her in France and India. So the band's music veers from French chanson to Indian ragas, or gypsy swing to Latin grooves. And the April Fishes, a conglomeration of San Francisco musical friends who came together for their music and their politics. And so the bike tour arrives for an outdoor concert after a 90-mile, two-day ride. Can you plug that into the green one, please? Into the green one? Thank you. The sun's just set, and the band is in the middle of hundreds of cyclists at a huge biking event in downtown San Jose. The musicians are lifting eight of their bikes onto rails, then hooking the spinning wheels to generators to power the concert's instruments, microphones, amps, and lights. Spiderwebs of cables run from the wired-up bikes to the musicians and sound techs. The entire concert is off-the-grid, human-powered. Volunteer bikers pedal furiously. The power surges and... For the band, the Bicycle Music Tour isn't just about protecting the environment, but to gain intimacy with their local environment. Just coming here to the gig along the marshlands, we saw snowy egrets, we saw pelicans, the smell of the marshiness, is that you can smell evolution happening, the grasses, the birds, 
So we just took our time. Absolutely blissful. And what is exciting to me is to say, yeah, I'm sweaty and I'm dirty and I stink. And now let's sing. Come on, let's do this together. Everybody, let's go. For the world, I'm Lonnie Shavelson. Rupa and the April Fishes play the final concert of their pedal power tour tomorrow night in San Francisco at the Independent. If you can't make it there, we've got Lonnie's great video of the tour at theworld.org. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces Respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.